So, Father, where shall we go from your spirit? Or where shall we flee from your presence? If we ascend into heaven, you are there. If we make our bed in Sheol, you are there. If we take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead us and your right hand shall hold us. So, Father, if we gather now in a, in a room and open your word in a place that we call church, you are here. So, Father, would you meet with us now? And would you wash us with your truth? And would you prepare us to live in this world for your glory? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We will be again in 1 Peter chapter 4 now as we make our way to the end. We've got three more sermons before we finish this series. This morning we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. Verses 1 through 11. I want to call your attention first in the middle of this passage to verse 7. Because it seems to be the leverage that Peter uses in these two uh, in your Bible's paragraphs. They didn't have paragraphs back when Peter wrote these, but uh, right in the middle in verse 7, we have this, this message, this verse that I read right before the offering. It goes like this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I want to just ask you this morning as we start into this, do you understand the times that you live in? Do you have a grasp about the reality of the days that we are living in right now? Does your perspective of where we live look like this? The end of all things is at hand. I dare say some of us are a little sluggish on that concept, and I don't know that we live with a sense of urgency that I think Peter is going to call us out on this morning from this passage. And I want to, I want to caution you because this was written in about the year, I don't know, 65 A.D., somewhere in the mid-60s A.D., and it's been almost 2,000 years since Peter wrote that, and it doesn't look like the end of all things has gotten any closer, does it? But I assure you it has. If it was true then, how much more is it true today? But we've got to lift out of this and not take a time-bound perspective on what it means for him to say the end of all things is at hand. Because it's not based on time. It's based on activities. It's based on actions. It's based on historical events. Jesus, when he came in to uh, the gospel of Mark in verse 15, the first thing he says when he hits Galilee is, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus says his first message in the book of Mark is, the time is fulfilled. That's exactly what Peter is saying here. The end of all things is at hand. This is a fulfillment sentence. And it's not based on a calendar. It's based on some events. And here's where we sit. We sit today with a Christ that was born of a virgin, who was born in a manger, 
who was pursued by Herod, who successfully escaped and fled to Egypt, came back, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, was buried on the third day, bodily rose from the dead, therefore defeating sin and death forever. He walked on the earth for some 40 days. He was seen and touched by many witnesses. In one instance, more than 500. And then we see that he ascended to the right hand of God the Father where he lives today to make intercession for us. That has all happened. That has all happened just as it was promised throughout the Old Testament. Word for word, letter for letter, jot for jot, tittle for tittle. It has all happened. We are a people that are waiting for one thing now. And I want to hear from you. What is this one thing that we're waiting for? Christ's return. The second coming. Everything else has been fulfilled. Everything else has been fulfilled. We're waiting for the gospel to be taken to the last person that will believe. Right? We're, we're in that phase. So there is something still to be done. But on the grand scheme of things. God has promised a second coming for his son. And that is what we are waiting for. And the minute Christ fulfilled all those other prophecies. And all those other promises. We entered into the end times. And so Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. And I will say to you this morning, the end is at at hand. This is a big theme for Peter. We're not going to read it, but if you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 and you read verses 1 through 13, you would see Peter unpacking further what these end times are all about. He believes that the end is upon him, even though he wrote this in 65 AD and was martyred not soon, not long after that. It still stands today because it's not time-bound, it's event-bound. And the main point that we're going to see this morning is we are to live a certain way with an understanding that the end of all things is at hand. And that sits right there in verse 7. And if you go north of verse 7, verses 1 through 6, we are told by Peter how we are to relate to the world with the knowledge that the end times are at hand. And if you go south of verse 7, verses 8 through 11, give us instruction on how we are to relate to one another within the confines of the church, as if the end times were upon us, as they no doubt are. So that's, that's our sermon for this morning. We're going to look, one, at how we are to relate to the world, and number two, we're going to look at how we are to relate to one another with the knowledge that the end of all things is at hand. I want to do one thing before we go to those two points. And that starts in verse 1, and Peter writes this. Let's read 1 through 6. Why don't we do that? Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, They might live in the Spirit the way God does. 
We are to be ready, according to verse 1, to suffer in the flesh like Christ did. And I refer you back to a couple of sermons, the last several sermons we have preached heavily on the call to be suffering saints in a world that we're exiles in. And I'm not going to re-preach those sermons. This is, a, this is a therefore, because Christ suffered in the flesh, so must you. But look at what he says. He says, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. So before we talk about how we're to relate to the world and relate to, our, to one another in the church, we need to understand that our lives need to have an evidence in them of a wartime battle mentality. Because Peter says, just as Christ suffered, so must you. And he, the way he says it is he says, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves. This is war talk. This is battle language. Jesus spoke to this often in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul was inspired to write, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So there is this call throughout the Scriptures that we as Christians are to arm ourselves. Do you hear the full armor of God? What, Ephesians chapter 6? We are to put the armor of God on. So over and over again, we are called as Christians to live in a warlike mentality, arming ourselves in the same way that Christ armed himself and suffered. Because we're not exempt from being like our master, like our teacher, Christ himself. And what Peter says here is if we arm ourselves in the same way of thinking, then we will suffer for righteousness sake. And if we do so, he says... That we will have ceased from sin. Boy, there's some verses in this text that I would really like to camp out on for like 30 minutes apiece. We're not going to be able to do that. How is it that we cease from sin? Does it feel like you've ceased from sin? I'm not raising my hand on that one. Because I know the sins that I struggle with to this day. What's different about Christians, we still sin, but we repent, right? That's the difference between a believer and non-believer. We're repenters. We still struggle with the flesh. But our sins ultimately have been dealt with by Christ. So if we suffer in the flesh for righteousness sake, this is an indicator that we have ceased from sin. Well, what that means is we no longer pledge allegiance to sinful ways that this world throws at us and entices us with. We've ceased from that. And we pledge allegiance to righteousness. And really we pledge allegiance to a person. And really we pledge allegiance to a God, the God, Jesus Christ. And so we have ceased from sin in that we're no longer pledging allegiance to ourselves and to to our sinful ways. We no longer live for human passions. Instead, we pledge allegiance to Christ. And in so doing, it says we will live for the will of God as best we can. And when we don't, we're convicted God's heavy hand is upon us. We repent and we're back on it again. And so we have uh, this calling to arm ourselves and to do away, to cease from sinning by living in the same way Christ lived, being willing to suffer for righteousness sake. And then look at what he says in verse three. We're to do this so as to live 
for the rest of the time in the flesh. That's just Peter's way of saying, as long as we draw breath, we live in the flesh, we draw breath, we are to live so no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And then he lists out an itinerary of things that the Gentiles like to live out in their lives. And so he says, the time has passed. We have already sufficiently lived like the Gentiles do. And Gentiles are Peter's way of saying non-believers. The time has passed, y'all, for us to live like the world that we live in lives. We have all dabbled in some of these sinful tendencies that this world lives in. We, we know what these look like. There's at some point before we professed Christ as Lord and Savior that we struggled with sinful tendencies. And Peter says, enough is enough. Stop. The time has passed. No longer live like the Gentiles do. You've done that enough. Now live for righteousness sake. And if you do, there's some things that are going to happen to you. That's, that's what Peter is saying for us today. And I just want to say, the time has passed for us. We have lived in some time in our life as the Gentiles do. That verse is true for all of us, no matter what age we are at. I I can say to our teenagers this morning, the time has passed. You're young. The time has passed. You you have lived enough in, in some point in your life like the the people of this world that don't believe in Jesus Christ. You've dabbled enough in that. It's enough. Stop. (laughs) Profess Christ and live for righteousness and get ready for some persecution that will come your way, but don't live like the world lives. The time has passed. You've done that enough. I can say to any adult in this room of any age, the time has passed. Maybe you're later in life and you have still held on fast to, to the to the ways of the world. And what are these ways? Peter gives us this list. He gives us this list. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The time has passed. If you've dabbled in any of that, if you're dabbling in any of that right now, stop. You've done enough. You've done enough. Walk away from that. We're to live the rest of our time in the flesh Not for those human passions. No. But for the will of God. Paul writes it like this. Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live according to the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. We're to put away those things. We're to put them to death. It's wartime language. We are to arm ourselves with such knowledge. So, so stop for a minute and ask yourself. Let's apply this sermon here for a moment. What worldly passions do you have a tendency towards? What, what temptations tug at you? Where do you find yourself falling? Is it food? Drink? Substance, even prescribed. Material things, money, stuff, sensuality. Any kind of idolatry, any, anything that you just say besides Christ, I can't 
live without? Gossip, complaining, and arguing, and grumbling. These are the normal ways of the world that we live in. These are the normal ways. Do you succumb to these? Do you struggle with these? Peter's saying, you've done that enough. Stop it. In the name of Christ and for the love of God, stop it. In the strength of Christ, stop it. No human will will work here. Surrender these things to Christ. He will set you free from them. So we need to be a people that live from today forward. The rest of our days. The rest of our fleshly lives. For the will of God, not for the passions of the flesh. That's Peter's calling, and that's the war language. That's the battle cry that I want to start this sermon with. Now, let's look at these two scenarios. We're to relate to the world in in one way, he gives us instructions, in light of these end times that are coming, and we're to relate to the church and one another in a separate way. So first, here's how we are to relate to the world. Look at verse 4. With respect to this, the world, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so we need to understand that when when we come to the realization that we have sinful tendencies and that we have been living in sin and we say, "Okay, I've done that enough. I need to cease from that. When we cease from doing such, the world is going to respond. The world is going to respond when we don't live like the world. And Peter gives us two responses. Number one, they will be surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They will be surprised. They will be puzzled at first. Huh. They'll turn their head sideways like your dog does when a high-pitched sound. They'll, They'll look at you and go, that's different. It'll start there. It'll progress. They'll... They'll do a double take. What? Did you, you're not doing what? You did what? So it'll advance a little bit. And, and then it will become speechless. The, they won't have words to describe you. They won't know what to say. And then it'll go to, you know what? Now I'm a little bit offended. Because if you're not doing that, you must think that I'm wrong for doing it. And then it'll ultimately come to the, the point of resentfulness. They will resent you. For not chasing after the things that they do. That's a progression. That's what we get with surprise. But Peter doesn't stop there because then he says, and they malign you. Now we take it to another level. They will malign you. They will be infuriated. They will be, in some cases, outraged. They will move to being slanderous and outspoken. They will then get aggressive and they will revile you. That's how the world is going to respond to you when you don't do what the world does. And I give you the greatest example of this, Jesus Christ. They did all of these things. They were surprised at the things Christ said and did and didn't say and didn't do. They were surprised when he answered questions with questions. But it didn't stop there because then they maligned him. They called him Beelzebul, which is Satan. They called him Satan. And ultimately, they were so infuriated and outraged that they nailed him to a cross. 
And Jesus says, as I went, so will, so must you go. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, comma, will be persecuted. So we need to be ready. Why do I preach this? This is heavy. I, I know this, but it's straight out of the Bible. And we live in an age where we're watching this creeping ever closer to us. We've got to get ready because we're going to live in a day in America like these people that Peter wrote to 2,000 years ago. It's coming. It's coming. And I am heralding the message, get ready so that we can honor and worship Christ even through persecution and suffering. Because we are worshipers of Him. And we worship Him all the better when we experience exactly what He experienced. So... We need to understand that the world is not going to take well to us not living like the world. So we've got teenagers in the room. And and I invite you. I have plenty of examples and life stories of being a teenager and being persecuted myself for not living like the world lived. I will be glad to meet with you and share those with you if you need encouragement. I'll be glad to meet with you. You're not alone. It's not uncommon. It is the way of the Christian life to be persecuted for living against the ways the world lives. And I urge you to not live as the world wants you to live. This right here is a dangerous instrument in your hands. Your opportunities to sin with this are multitudinous. It's a big word for a bunch. There are countless ways you can sin with this. There's countless ways your friends at school are going to entice you to sin with this. Don't. Don't. And when you don't, and they look at you like you're crazy, and they talk to you like you're crazy, and they revile you, know that you are going to be rewarded for this, and that all will be well, and in that moment say, wow, this is what Jesus felt like a little bit. Pastors, we, we've seen in Houston, when a pastor preaches the gospel and, and believes something about how God ordained marriage to be between one man and one woman and God has established genders for all time, those pastors, first there's a double take at them. You really believe this stuff? And then there's gnashing of teeth and there's subpoenas. Adults in the business world, you're going to be questioned You're going to be challenged to do some things that are totally unethical, totally against the way the Lord would have us to lead a business and operate in the business world. And you're not going to do it, and they're going to malign you, and they're going to be surprised. They're not going to understand you, and it's going to cost you, maybe in a bonus, maybe in a promotion, or maybe in a paycheck. And I'll say to any adult in this room, if you want to talk through scenarios of being persecuted in the workplace, For living out biblical ethics, I've got plenty of examples in my life and I'd love to meet with you and talk with you. I'm glad to go there with you. I want to encourage you because I know what it's like for the world to malign. Let me give you an example of what's going on here. Uh, I read in Time Magazine two weeks ago this article. I think this synthesizes everything that I've just said. This this article is written by a guy that... uh, 
claims to be a Christian, um, and it's entitled, What What Christianity Without Hell Looks Like. And I'll tell you, from times to times, there are plenty of people in the world that want to attack the biblical truth of hell, okay? I'm not going to preach a hell sermon today. There's a time for that, and hell is very real. Jesus talked about hell more than anything else during his ministry days, so it's a real deal. But here's what he writes. The idea that the Bible declares hell a real and literal place is no more valid than the toxic lie that the Bible condemns homosexuality. What a first sentence. What a first sentence, especially out of one who claims to be a Christian. Yet the idea that hell is real persists. Why? Because over the centuries, those in positions of power within the institutions of Christianity, pastors and others, have methodically, relentlessly, and with great art used the doctrine of hell to exploit the innate fear of death that is harbored by one and all. He talks about people that respond in crazy ways in their life to this truth about hell, that they would actually go to church, that they would actually give so that other people could have the gospel taken to them with those funds so that they wouldn't go to hell. He mocks those people. And then he says, for the rest of us, it's certainly worth asking what a Christianity without hell looks like. And he gives five things that that Christianity would look like if hell is not proclaimed. And here they go. A Christianity without hell would be literally fearless. Number two, a Christianity without hell would have nothing to recommend it but the constant and unending love of God. It would allow Christians to point upwards to God's love, but never downward to his or her wrath. His or her wrath. And we believe in a God that is fully loving and that is fully wrathful. He will judge sin once and for all. He is in a state of grace and love right now, but the day is coming when he will be wrathful against sin and he will judge it for all time. And that will include a place called hell. Number three, a Christianity without hell would be a largely unevangelical world since there would be nothing to save anyone from. This Christian doesn't want us to be evangelical. Number four, a Christianity without hell would trust that God's loving benevolence towards all people extends beyond this life and into the next. All people. And number five, bringing peace about the afterlife, a Christianity without hell would free Christians to fully embrace this life, to heed Christ's commandment to, in this life, love our neighbor as we love ourselves. There's no emphasis on the afterlife in that statement. So he says this, in short, a Christianity without hell would be a fearless, trusting, loving, divinely inspired source of good in the world. And this Christianity, you ready for this sentence? And this Christianity would be more biblical. Would be truer to not just the words, but the very spirit of Christianity. He says a Christianity without hell would be more biblical. The Bible is full of hell. It can't be more biblical. This is one that looks at us with surprise when we preach the doctrine of hell. And I'm going to tell you the doctrine of hell is real because if hell is not real, then Christ died for nothing. 
And if hell isn't real, then the resurrection, A, didn't happen, and B, we need to really get over it. It's not that big a deal. And he probably just fell asleep a little bit and came to and rolled the stone over by himself. Hell is central to a need for a Savior. And Jesus is called Savior. He's called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If he does not take away our sins, we will go to hell. And yet we're maligned for believing this. And it is on page after page after page and in quote after quote after quote of God the Father himself and God the Son himself. So he ends his article saying, I want that Christianity. I insist upon that Christianity. Tell me I'm not alone. That's how he closes his letter. So he is insisting and he wants a figment of his own imagination. And when we hold fast to the perfect word of God and we say it is loaded with hell and there is a real place called hell that needs to be warned of. And there's a solution to this call for hell. He's called Jesus Christ. People are going to look at us with surprise. And they're going to malign us. And Christianity just got maligned in this article in Time magazine. This is the world we live in by one who claims to be a Christian. So, we need to understand that the world is not going to embrace us at times. And at other times, they're going to put us off and, and, and look at us like we're trite and that's cute. And, and they're going to just not really take us seriously. But there will come a day when, when they will regret their casual attitude towards our profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And, and here's what Peter says in verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So we stay on message. There's a God who will judge the living and the dead. He will do it. And, and when he comes to you, may he say, bless you, come to me, versus curse you, go away, I never knew you. You worker of lawlessness. So as we prepare to endure such suffering in this world, we, we need to keep in mind Matthew ten twenty eight. Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear them. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is talking about God the Father who can destroy body and soul in hell, it is a real place that we need to be cautioned of. So all will have to give an account. And we need to be on message whether we endure persecution for this or not. So now let's move down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip and I'm going to move down now to how we are to relate to the church. One, we're to relate to the world and that they're going to be surprised and they're going to malign us when we don't live like they live. The time has ceased for us to live like they live. But now look at what Peter says as we are to look towards one another in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. So this one another language is to Peter's audience. And these are churches, members of churches that he wrote to. We're to love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. 
Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter shifts us now. We're not looking at the world. We're looking at how we are to relate to one another. And he says we are to keep loving one another earnestly. So in this time, we're living in the end times. The end of all things is at hand. As we live in this time, can you say that I am loving my one another's earnestly? He says, keep doing this. There's an assumption there that it's happening. Are you a loving Christian to your fellow Christians? And are you doing it earnestly? Not out of duty, but out of disposition. Is, it, is this how you are wired now and you get there by being born again to a living hope have you been born again to a living hope and if so are you loving one another earnestly because that's how we're to live inside of these end times that are upon us and he says love covers a multitude of sins there's some controversy over what that means but i think it's pretty simple if we love one another we forgive one another. We, we cover sins. Now, God ultimately loved us and covered our sins with the blood of His Son on the cross. And so we are to imitate Him. And if we love one another, when one another wrongs us, and we have moments where we wrong each other, husbands wrong wives, kids wrong parents, bosses wrong employees, and so on, when those happen... We, we cover them with love. We're forbearing. We're forgiving because we know that God forgave those sins as well. And if God forgave, we can forgive. And so we love one another because God did it. And we forgive one another because God did it. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we live that verse out to one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. But then he says we are to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Without grumbling. We are to be welcoming to one another. We are to be welcoming to strangers. When you meet them in the grocery store, you have them into your home. And we do this out of a service of gratitude, not a service of grumbling, not duty, but joyful disposition. We do all things without grumbling or disputing. So that we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation amongst whom we shine like lights in the world. That's Paul in Philippians chapter 2. And then he deploys the gifts that God has given us in his encouragement to us. He says we are to use the gifts that God has blessed us with to honor God and to encourage one another. And let's just look at each of these that he, that he cites here. He says, first of all, that whoever serves, or I'm sorry, whoever speaks, we are to speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Have you weighed your speech to one another, husband to wife, brother to sister, employee to supervisor? Have you weighed your words? Are you, are you speaking the oracles of God when you open your mouth in your relationships? Or are you speaking... The words of the world. I want you to listen to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 and following. 
Because here's how we are to speak. Paul writes, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Now that sounds like, stop. You've done enough sinning like the Gentiles. Stop that. It must not even be named amongst you. Then verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. We are not to be a people that speak anything other than the oracles of God. And if we're speaking the oracles of God, there will be no filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking coming out of our mouths. We measure our words for the glory of God. We have a limited number of words that we can use. We deploy them to speak the oracles of God only because the end of all things is at hand. If we really believe that the end of all things is at hand, what comes out of our mouth will bless instead of malign. It will encourage instead of pervert. So we've got to be careful with our jokes, our our negativity. We need to speak the oracles of God, the promises of God to one another as we live in a world that's hostile towards us. The, the second gift that he talks about is the gifts of serving. There's many that fall up under that. And he says that we are, when we serve, we are to serve as one by the strength that God supplies. This isn't, this isn't just mustering up the strength to do human duty. We, we are serving in the strength that God has given us. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7, speaking of the gifts, it says this. Now, there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good of the church. So I want to tell you that as you look at how you are to relate to us within the body, You need to understand God has gifted you in a unique way. Some he's gifted the gift of teaching. Some he's gifted uniquely in the area of hospitality. Some have been gifted in the in the means of prayer, of service, of financially giving, of benevolence and on and on and on. And as God has gifted you in each of these areas, you need to understand he's gifted you uniquely. It doesn't look the same. The the same gift of teaching doesn't look the same in the same two people. It's like a fingerprint. No one has a fingerprint like you. And no one has been gifted to teach like some. No one has been gifted to be benevolent like some. There's this unique way that God has made you as a person. And he has called you into salvation that now he wants you to deploy that gift uniquely for the betterment of the body of Christ and for the glory of God. And you understanding that you live in the end times where the end of all things is at hand you must deploy these gifts in the unique way that God gave them to you for His glory and in His strength and for the betterment of His people. And He says that we are to do this in order that in everything God may be glorified in Jesus Christ. So we teach for the glory of Christ. We're benevolent for the glory of Christ. We pray with people for the glory of Christ. We encourage, and on and on and on. 
Not for our glory, because these gifts are not given to us for our self-esteem. They're given to us for the glory of God and the building up of His church until Christ comes again at the end of all things. So here's how we will conclude this. Back to verse 7. In verse 7, Peter says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. We are to be self-controlled in a world that's not. Y'all are going to go to school tomorrow, and you're not going to see self-control. You're not. We're going to go to work tomorrow. We're going to turn on the TV. We're going to look on the Internet, and we're not going to see a world that's under self-control. But we're to not be like that. We're to be a people that are self-controlled. We're going to be sober-minded if we're following after Christ. You will not see sober-mindedness in the world that you live in. But you've got to go against that grain. And in so doing, you're going to be maligned by some, and you're going to need to encourage us in the church that are going to be experiencing the same kinds of reviling and maligning. And so if you knew that the end, the very last day, was this next week, Thursday... What would that do to you between now and Thursday? Would you act differently? Would you speak differently? The the end of all things is at hand. Jesus told us this. It's going to come like a thief in the night. No one knows the day nor the hour. Only the Father does. And we are to have our lamps lit and ready, is what Jesus says in his parable in Matthew. And so if you knew... Next Thursday was it, and Christ was coming in. Would you behave differently? Would you speak differently in the week that's ahead? The the right answer is no. We're to live every day as if the end is upon us. We're to speak the oracles of God. We're to serve one another in the strength of God. We're to endure suffering from the world for the glory of God. We, we should not change anything about us because we don't know when that end will come and every day is an act of worship in anticipation of this end. And he says this, be sober-minded, be self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. We've heard that language before in First Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And he ends that verse with, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We are to be self-controlled and sober-minded in a world that's not, because the end times are upon us. And in so doing, our prayer life, our relationship with God will thrive. It will not be hindered. If you're not self-controlled, and if you're not sober-minded, you're not going to pray. And if you dare pray, you won't pray effectively. And if you even do that, they won't be heard, because God does not answer Prayer from an unrepentant heart. So I urge you this morning to understand the times that you live in. The end of all things is at hand. We are only waiting for one thing to occur, and that is the second coming of Christ. And we are told that that is going to be a surprise visit. And as we get ready for that visit, may we live in such a way that we shine the light of the gospel into the world that we live in and into the one another's hearts as we endure as exiles in this world. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that you would remind us day in and day out we're waiting for one thing. We're waiting for the second coming of our promised Savior. And I pray that that would lead us to live with the world in such a way that we point them to Him. And that we live in the world in such a way that we endure under persecution and suffering just as Christ did. I also pray, Father, that it would call us to encourage one another and stir one another up to love and good works so that we may all be found faithful on that day that He certainly returns. Father, there are some in this room that are still living in the ways of the world. I pray that today you would call them to say, that's enough. Through Christ and His strength, I can walk away from that. And I must, because the end is upon me. And I will meet my Maker. And I will be judged. And I want that to be a welcome instead of a casting away. I pray, Father, that you would convict someone of that this morning. Father, lead us now as we finish our time of worship here. And would you send us out of here worshiping you throughout this week as we encounter this world that you've called us to live in. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I do urge you, if you you are holding on to the things of this world and living in ways that this world would approve of, would would you... Come talk with me. Would you come talk with someone and say, I need help cutting this out of my life. I need to arm myself with such a way of thinking that Christ did that I would deny myself these worldly passions. The end is upon you and us. And we need to be serious about getting ready for Christ's coming.